This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. We are back with our daily edition of the show after two excellent specials on Wednesday and on Thursday. And here to kick off our Friday show is none other than Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. Hello, Michael. Well, hello. I'm, I apologize that you'll have to depend on me to kick it off, but I'll, I'll do my best. That's right. Well, last week, Michael, you and I talked about the news, the big news out of Fort Smith revolving around St. Scholastica, the monastery that is on pace. Uh, when we talked last week, uh, was on pace to be demolished at the beginning of June, and we have an update on that. Yeah, we have an update. Not Probably not an update that the um, the folks who want to save the monastery would want to hear, but just a little bit of background. The Benedictine sisters uh, announced that they announced on May 10th that they're going to destroy what is almost a hundred year old, iconic, uh, very large structure um, that almost everyone who's lived in Fort Smith for any length of time will recognize. Like I said, it's a it was built 1923-24 in kind of the late Gothic revival style of architecture. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. And the sisters said that, you know, they just tried and tried and tried to find somebody to buy it or find other purposes for it, couldn't come up with anything, so they're going to demolish it beginning June 1st. Now, that's not to say it will begin, that the demolition will begin June 1st. There's, uh, the last we checked, there's not been a permit yet, so, but uh, beginning June 1st, that process will kick in. You know, Matthew, I don't know if they begin the next week or week after or a month later, that, that will depend, but we've been told on June 1st they'll begin. So we did a little check around to see maybe if anybody, there's a lot of social media buzz about, oh gosh, no, we've got to save it. You know, surely somebody will save it. I talked to several developers off the record who'd looked at it and they said, yeah, it's, in fact, one developer said that the cost to kind of turn it maybe into a hotel or apartments or condominiums or any other possible use were what this developer said is beyond what is financially practical. However, I also talked to Stacy Hurst. She's secretary of the Arkansas Department of Parks, Heritage and Tourism. Uh, one of her the agency's under her department is historic preservation. And she said that no one in her office, uh, no one in any of her agencies had ever been contacted by the sisters about possible preservation. They have state tax credits, federal tax credits. They have what she called uh, limited emergency funds. But all that requires communication uh, with the sisters. And that just has not taken place. They will need, uh, as we noted in the story, a true uh, Hail Mary, <laughs> and about $15 million just to kind of keep it off the demolition block. It sounds a little bit like it's almost too little, too late, and and the nuns have kind of made up their mind. Is uh, is that kind of your take on it? Yeah, to that point. So I had reached out to Jennifer Burchett. Um, she is the spokesperson for the sisters and never responded, never responded. Well, on Thursday, I finally got a response from her. And um, it started off, Matthew, very encouraging. She talked about, well, now's the time for us to listen. We, she even used the word, we remain empathetic to the pain the community is feeling. Those were her words. But then wrapped all that up by saying, demolition will proceed starting on June 1st. It's like, you know, we hear you. Uh, we understand you don't like it, but sorry. I've been told that it's one of the uh, agencies uh, under Stacey Hurst. They're trying to make some last-minute calls around a different foundation, different groups to try to save it. But the problem is, Matthew, you know, if the sisters have decided they don't want to save it, then it comes down. And it's just going to be a shame if it comes down. Um, like I said, it's a very iconic, well-known structure, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. Those are kind of things that you think we'd want to save. 
but it looks like right now, um, and we are kind of working on an update story. It'll depend on a few things coming together. The, the Vegas money right now would be on it coming down. Changing gears here a little bit, the Arkansas River has seen an uptick in traffic over the first four months of 2022. What does that mean for folks who work on the river and for the folks who are receiving things from the Arkansas River? Well, it mean, that's a, those are good questions because we often or we typically only see, you know, highway traffic, trucks, moving goods. We see airline commercial cargo. And unless you travel frequently over a bridge that crosses the Arkansas River, you're not going to see, you know, the millions of tons of commercial products that come up and down the river. So, which are vital uh, really to some kind of foundational aspects of the Arkansas economy, the U.S. economy, frankly. But in the first four months of 2022, uh, shipments on the Arkansas River totaled 3.5 million tons. That's up right around 2% uh, from the same period in 2021. And a large part of that is almost because of a 46% increase uh, in shipments between ports on the river system. I mean, the inbound tonnage was down 18%. That's tonnage that comes in, obviously, off from another river system. The outbound shipments, which are those that are, begin on the Arkansas River system and end somewhere else, uh, those are down about 4%. So, And that is historically, I'll say, a little off. Typically, you don't see that big of a discrepancy and you don't see that big of a gain in terms of internal shipments, but those were, like I said, up 46%. Uh, I think what you're seeing is a lot of, or, well, not what you're seeing, what I'm being told by Brian Day, he's head of the port of Little Rock, and Marty Shell. Marty Shell runs a port in Van Buren. He also, his company runs the port of Fort Smith. They're both telling me that what we're seeing is just people scrambling to work through the supply chain bottlenecks. Marty Shell told me that this is the busiest he's been in 27 years in the business. So what it means, hopefully, is a good thing that we're moving. For example, the top items that were shipped were sand, gravel, and rock, about 1.1 million during that first four months. That's up almost 40%. That's important because that's used in a lot of construction, road building, that type of thing. So if you're seeing good activity in that, again, you're seeing some good activity and kind of, again, some foundational aspects um, of the economy. And um, you also saw wheat shipments, which... That's more of an East Arkansas thing, but those were up 29% in the first four months. So good number. And, and look, and these are up against pretty good comparisons, Matthew. Last year, tonnage was about uh, a little over 10 million, about 10.7 million, and that was up 4%. So this 2% gain is up against what were some pretty good gains last year. As we're looking at the upcoming uh, primary election in May 24th, one of the things that will be on the ballot for Fort Smith voters is a proposed continuation of a 1% sales tax. And there is some potential rising costs if that sales tax is not passed. Right. Yeah. So the Fort Smith board of directors, they're going to have a study session on uh, this Monday, this upcoming Monday. Of course, the vote is Tuesday. But city voters, city residents are asked to extend this one cent, 1% sales tax. Again, it's not a new tax, but they're reconfiguring the use. So 25% of that uh, will go to the city's fire department and parks department, parks and recreation department. And then 75%, part of the 75%, uh, most of it, and I'm throwing a lot of percentages around here, but 
a little over 83% of that 75% will go to federal consent decree work on the city's water and sewer system, and the remainder will be directed to the police department. It'll be the first time the police department has had any direct funding, um, and Fort Smith uh, Police Chief Danny Baker said that will allow them to do a lot of things they haven't done in the past, and it'll allow them to catch up on where they should be on wages. There would be an across-the-board wage increase of about 24% for, on average, that is for police officers. So that's where that would go. But the key thing is this federal consent decree work. And I think, again, by way of reminder, um, it was back in 2014, the federal government essentially got tired of the city not doing the right thing in terms of updating and fixing its sewer system. So they put them under this consent decree order that they had to do certain things. That was initially estimated to be about a $480 million project. Now it's up to about $650 million. And the city will soon be out of bond funds that they that they um, initially had several years ago. And so if this tax doesn't pass, there could be an up to 58% increase, uh, which would almost have to be immediate because the federal government, they don't really care where the city gets the money. The city just has to come up with the money to keep doing the work that has been mandated by the feds. So they'd have to be almost a 58% increase in sewer rates And Matthew, that's on top of an almost uh, 160% increase that's taken place in the last few years. So that's what's at stake. Part of the the commitment in that is that if that tax does pass, there will be limits on how much the sewer rates can increase over the next three to five years. But uh, Enforcement City Director LaVon Morton is just putting the word out that, you know, this is not a threat or whatever. It's just reality that if the tax doesn't pass, you know, the feds are going to make us get the money one way or the other. Right. And one of the things that Morton says is uh, that it's a renewal of a tax. You're already paying the tax. It's essentially extending the tax into 2030. Yeah. that And he stressed that many times. In fact, many of the directors who voted, there are five directors who voted for the program and two against it. It's an, Again, it's an eight-year extension. But yeah, they've all said, look, we're not asking for a new tax. That's the beauty. We're able to continue this mandated federal consent decree work without raising new taxes. We just want to reconfigure the tax that's already on the books. Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics with us today. Michael, thanks so much for spending some time with us this Friday. You're welcome, sir. Have a good weekend. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The 35th annual May Arts Festival continues in Eureka Springs. This month-long celebration includes live music, various art exhibits and tours, poetry slam, and more. EurekaSpringsFestivalOfTheArts.org for an event schedule and more information. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Timothy Dennis. According to the Arkansas State Crime Lab, drug overdoses rose with 493 deaths in 2021. The Arkansas Department of Human Services granted $300,000 to three recovery community organizations to aid in the looming crisis. The Wolf Street Foundation, based in Little Rock, is an organization that aims to assist those in recovery. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith asked Wolf Street's executive director, Justin Buck, about the extent of the issue in Arkansas and how a grant by the state will aid the recovery organizations in helping Arkansans with long-term recovery from substance abuse. People in Arkansas are experiencing substance use disorder and substance use challenges at incredibly high rates. So, you know, we're consistently in the top five for uh, substance use. We're, we're consistently in the top five for overprescription of opioids. All of these data points that, that say, hey, we have a problem 
they're here in Arkansas. We're, we're really grateful for the leadership of the drug director and DHS and all of the folks that, that come together to, to work on this problem, but we still have work to do. Absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit more about peer-led recovery? Because it seems like that was one of the main factors and, and talking points in the, in the press conference. So what we're finding out through research, uh, anecdotal and evidence-based research is that peer-based uh, recovery support services are crucial to people's recovery. So what you have is a person with lived experience in addiction and recovery, a person who's receiving training and earning certification to be able to help people get through not only that early recovery point in their life, right? When I'm making a decision to make a change, maybe I'm looking for treatment, maybe I'm looking for um, a support meeting to attend to start this recovery journey, uh, walk them through that process, but also to walk alongside them for the long term and provide support because that's what's so key about it. You know, you, you, you really get a good foundation for your recovery going to a 28-day treatment program or going through an intensive outpatient treatment program. So those clinical treatment opportunities are crucial, but, but what makes the difference is long-term aftercare. And that long-term aftercare being provided by a peer who's been there and understands a lot of those struggles it is really powerful. So instead of, like I said, instead of having 28 days of support for your substance use disorder or your substance use challenge, now you're looking at having someone for the long term, which is what makes the difference. Uh, because just statistically speaking, I mean, well over, uh, well over three quarters of people have a reoccurrence of use within the first year after treatment. Um, of those, the vast majority of people have a reoccurrence of use or what we traditionally call a relapse uh, within three months of treatment. So that just kind of illustrates how important long-term support is to people's uh, long-term recovery. Is peer recovery kind of a new, a new way to tackle substance abuse and, and its treatment, or has this been long withstanding but maybe in a different form? Yeah, so we have a lot of good data from other states who have implemented peer programs. Uh, we are, we're learning a lot, for example, from the McShen Foundation in Richmond, Virginia, who is uh, an industry-leading provider of peer-based recovery support services. So we're grateful for their technical assistance as we launch this. I'll also say the, the peer certification and, and the way we're doing peer services in Arkansas is new and is innovative. But if you think back, I mean, gosh, how do we know this will work? Well, think about 12-step programs and how, okay, we come into the 12-step program, we find a sponsor who walks us through the steps. So the, the idea is maybe not new. What's really new is the support behind it and creating professional work opportunities for peers with lived experience and then training and certifying them to do this work. That leads in very perfectly um, to my next question. What kind of skills and what kind of help can someone who's struggling with substance abuse or substance abuse disorder expect to gain after visiting an organization like Wolf Street? So when a person comes to a recovery community organization for, for help with their substance use disorder or substance use challenge, they can expect to find someone who understands what they're going through. Uh, they can expect to find someone who is compassionate and empathetic. 
Uh, they can find someone who understands that this is not a moral issue. This is uh, very much uh, a disease that we're all fighting together. And they can expect to find a, a, a whole lot of help. When you look at folks in early recovery and the number of organizations it takes, uh, just for a, a quick example, okay, let's say you come out of incarceration. Okay, I got to get my health insurance figured out. How do I do that? so that I can continue practicing good health or, or start practicing good health. Uh, okay, maybe I have uh, had a long-term methamphetamine addiction or other addiction that has a real impact on my dental health. How can I get help with um, a new set of teeth or extracting teeth or things of that nature? Uh, okay, I need housing. Where do I find that? Okay, I need a community of support. Where do I find that? It can quickly become really overwhelming for folks who are bridging back to community from a treatment setting or incarceration setting. Is there any data or any figures um, as to the quantity of people that Wolf Street has interacted with or helped? Yeah. So the Wolf Street Foundation is in its 40th year. So we've been doing recovery work for four decades. Uh, on, on any given week, we have 56 uh, support meetings that happen right here at the Wolf Street Center. So our meeting attendance for 12-step uh, meetings, for faith-based meetings, for community-based meetings, all these recovery pathways, we, we have an annual attendance of 15,000 at the Wolf Street Center. And then on top of that, with our one-to-one -one peer services, in the last year, we worked with about 75 peers uh, in, in different capacities to get them to the services that they need for their recovery. This year, we anticipate serving between 120 and 150 peers one-to-one, -one, and once again, seeing our meeting attendance reach about 15,000. Kind of pivoting a little bit towards, I mean, I'm curious as as to what you think the primary motivator was for agencies like the Department of Human Services and and the drug director, Kirk Lane, to invest in peer-led recovery programs? Mm, great question. Yeah, uh, so we, the, that department has actually shown a lot of leadership in the, in the push for peer-based recovery support services. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for Jimmy McGill and Kirk Lane and Deborah Bledsoe, we, we wouldn't be seeing this level of support for peer-based recovery support services at all. What, what we know is that clinical treatment doesn't work without long-term support. And what we also know is, frankly, insurance does not cover long-term support. So without some public funding to at least launch these expanded efforts, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, it was, we had a plan to do it at Wolf Street, but it was going to take us like three to five years to get there. With public support, we're able to do that immediately. We're able to launch now and scale it. With that public support, we're able to move forward confidently, knowing that we have reliable funding at least for 12 months to get this thing off the ground. I think what motivated what motivated Department of Human Services and, and other government stakeholders to get involved in this though is that they saw the tremendous impact that peer services has the tremendous impact that long-term support has, and the incredible community that is built out of it. Um, so we're seeing people that are 
really stepping into their full potential, really investing in their recovery, and then really growing into new career pathways, right? So recovery is a public health issue, but recovery is not just a public health issue. Recovery is a workforce development issue. Recovery is an economic growth issue. Recovery is a community safety issue. And when you look at all of that through the lens of providing tremendous opportunity instead of controlling problem people, uh, you really unleash that potential. And, and our communities are going to see that come back and, and pay dividends just, just of, of tremendous impact right here locally. Justin, should the public reframe the way they view this issue and how should they? Yeah, absolutely. So we we definitely need to see this as as a public health issue. We also need to see this as, uh, you know, it's it's not a criminal justice issue either. I mean, I want to say that our criminal justice system in Arkansas is really opening up. We're seeing great diversion programs, drug courts, specialty courts to help people with substance use disorder and substance use challenges. We're seeing a lot of positive movement from law enforcement agencies. Uh, the, 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 the agent in charge of the DEA in Arkansas has said several times, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. And so there's a lot of really positive energy there. I'm hoping that continues, and especially in rural parts of the state, I hope that law enforcement agencies, other criminal justice systems will start seeing, okay, we can work together with this community of people in recovery because we're not going to arrest our way out of it. We can't, we can't incarcerate our way out of this problem. I spoke to Justin Buck, executive director at the Wolf Street Foundation over Zoom last week. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. And we will hear more from Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith later in today's program when she speaks with film critic Courtney Lanning about the new film featuring the return of some well-known chipmunks. That's later on this Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. Last winter, the Fayetteville Arts Council chose two artists to paint murals on either end of winding concrete retaining wall along Archibald Yell, a busy historic section of highway in South Fayetteville. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, one mural is now complete. The second one is in progress. Jeremy Navarrete is a 36-year-old muralist and tattoo artist who resides in Springdale. He recently relocated to the region with his spouse from New Mexico. He has a multimedia associate's degree and bachelor's degree in game art design. Navarrete was selected by the Fayetteville Arts Council to paint the larger of two murals, this one on the south end of a retaining wall along Archibald Yell, a highway named after the second governor of Arkansas, near the intersection of South Block Avenue. The theme, Experience the Adventures of Fayetteville, um, was really inspiring for me. Urban murals are trending across the country, illustrating the spirit, culture, or politics of a place, employing working local artists. Most are painted on buildings, But this retaining wall mural posed a unique challenge, Navarrete says, due to its location on a steep, heavily trafficked boulevard. I did design it for when they are driving by really quickly. Navarrete says he completed his commission over three very long days. So it's a little over 400 square feet, uh, so a little over 40 feet wide, about 10 feet tall. Um, I mainly use aerosol uh, spray paint for the majority of the mural, 
Um, of course, I did use some rollers and um, bucket paint as well, um, and a little bit of brush. The mural, partially shaded by tree canopy, contains elements of nature, family, and recreation, and serves as a welcome sign for those traveling north into Fayetteville. Uh, so I put some flowers and some silhouettes of plants in that left corner that will be grown over eventually to kind of make it where it peeks through, complement. Um, and then also I added some fireflies with some glowing effects coming out after that. And then from there, moving to the right, is where I have a silhouette of a couple walking a dog around Lake Fayetteville, which again is something I find very unique in the area, just very centrally located, easy accessible, very beautiful lake. Uh, moving over from that, it goes into uh, where it just says Fayetteville, very legible lettering. And then you do see a small little sharp curve start there, um, or spiral, I guess. And that's where the black line that continues throughout the design starts. Um, and that is to represent the Razorback Trail. And then moving over to the right from there is just a really cool abstract uh, faded color blue, uh, some different um, shades of blue with a bicyclist, um, of course, riding uphill, um, just to represent all the cool bike trails in the area, of course. And then from there goes to the Cardinal, very vibrant red bird um, that I find, again, very special for the area. Navarrete researched best practices in order to paint a mural to withstand the elements. I did contact a concrete specialist um, on how to seal the concrete for moisture because it is a retaining wall and then the front's getting a lot of sunlight. And I did get a sealer on it. Uh, from there, I used very high quality German spray paint that is designed to last for a long period of time, very vibrant colors. Um, once I finished everything, I then did do two clear coats um, to help protect it as well, even further, uh, give it a shield kind of way. Um, and then from there, I did a graffiti coating, anti-graffiti coating uh, to protect it. So if by chance it does get vandalized, it is easily fixable. We found the second artist, 29-year-old Austin Floyd at work later the same day, just as the bright sun was setting. My mural specifically is on the corner of Rock Street and College, right before College transitions into Archibald Yell and starts that big S-curve. The freshly scrubbed and whitewashed wall is filled with drawings presently, illustrating a parade of wild animals, which will soon be painted. It is native animals doing local activities. We've got a elk on roller skates, a black bear on a bicycle, there's a fox on a scooter, squirrels on a longboard, a couple mice on a kite, and uh, littered with uh, a handful of other local birds. Everything in the mural is uh, an endemic species to the area, so it means it's found uh, naturally around these parts. Along with his art training, Floyd, as you can hear, holds a degree in animal science. In this mural, all the animals are going to have uh, shadows on the wall to kind of give them a little bit of uh, dimensionality. But in the shadows are going to be painted the common name and scientific name of the animal. So it'll be, they'll be painted in darker gray in the arty gray shadows. So it'll be like a little Easter egg in there. It'll make it a little interactive and educational. Floyd's mural includes an existing painting of a massive purple growling bulldog, Fayetteville's high school mascot, which he's fully restored and embellished. I power washed uh, everything that was on their way as best as I could. 
and I designed a new bulldog to go there. It's it is the the face of the high school bulldog. Uh, they get I went and met with um, a handful of people at the Fayetteville High School, and they gave me um, I guess you'd call it. A, design brief it had their specific colors and fonts and bulldog so i took that bulldog i toyed with his mouth a little bit to make his mouth be able to hold a flag he's got a flag in his mouth that says fayetteville on the banner um, but then the the body was something that i came up with and paired to make it running the old bulldog was i think more standing growling and the new one that i've got to match the theme of all my animals running down the wall he's kind of uh, leading the pack Floyd's herd of wild creatures fly and careen through his long muralist stride bikes, skateboards, and wagons. The professional muralist, illustrator, apparel designer, and canvas painter is using exterior wall paint, which he is hand-applying with brushes and rollers. Floyd expects the commission will take through this weekend to complete, depending on the weather, and he welcomes visitors to drop by. This is all I'm doing right now, and it's such a big opportunity. Um, I have so much love and admiration for Fayetteville that I'm just really excited to be here, and I'm going to take a lot of time. The Fayetteville Arts Council and Creative Spaces at Mount Sequoia Center co-coordinated this mural project, soliciting requests for qualifications from artists last December. Both artists are being paid a generous stipend. The public art murals are part of a street improvement project supported by a bond issue approved by Fayetteville voters in 2019. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The University of Arkansas announced this week that they were in the final stages of again making Coca-Cola its exclusive soft drink sponsor and supplier. For the last 10 years, Razorback fans have sipped on Pepsi products, whose deal comes to a close June 30th. According to the news release from the university, once the deal is finalized, the Coca-Cola agreement will go through June of 2032. The Bentonville Runway Group have announced that they plan to open a full-service hotel in downtown Bentonville by the summer of 2024. The 116,000-square-foot project will be six stories tall and include an event space, restaurant, bar, cafe, and two retail spaces seated on the southeast corner of the downtown square. The developers say the hotel will have several cycling-specific amenities, including a bike valet, secure storage, and a bike wash. For those using vehicles that aren't pedal-operated, a new parking structure is being built a half-block east of the hotel, replacing a surface parking lot with 93 parking spaces. The developer will pay for the parking deck construction, which will also include levels for public parking. Rope Swing Hospitality, the management company who currently runs Preacher's Son, Press Room, Louise, and others, will lead the food and beverage operations for the new hotel. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. With me via Zoom right now is Courtney Lanning. Courtney, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Rachel. So today we have Chippendale Rescue Rangers. What can you tell us about this movie? So Chippendale, of course, are very popular Disney characters. Showed up in the 40s, but a lot of millennials and Zoomers will know them from the 90s cartoon, uh, late 80s, early 90s cartoon that aired on TV. And these are a group of chipmunks who team up and get into all sorts of rambunctious adventures. And this uh, movie, this reboot, this sequel, whatever you want to call it, uh, is sort of like a, a meta continuation. It's sort of an updated take on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I am curious about how the animation holds up in this film. So 
The thing with Who Framed Roger Rabbit was it was a theatrical release because back in the 80s, of course, they didn't have streaming services. Uh, so it had a big budget um, and lots of really carefully crafted 2D animation. And for this reboot or sequel, which is just coming to Disney+, Plus, it's not a theatrical release and didn't quite have the theatrical budget that normal animated movies does, the, the animation isn't as good as, as the previous movie that we've been talking about. You know, it shows that this this film could have used a bigger budget on par with the theatrical release. Uh, while the background characters and the props all look great, Chip and Dale have a few issues themselves, and it's it's a little unnerving at times when you see them. <laughs> and you did mention Disney and Disney Plus, so I'm curious about how their ownership affects this film and kind of the the characters we see. Well, you know, since Disney owns pretty much everything nowadays in terms of entertainment, uh, the company is able to stuff this movie with tons and tons of cameos. Uh, And actually, I think that's one of the few things that keeps this movie afloat. Uh, Just how many bonkers cameos that they throw in here. Characters from Scrooge McDuck to the My Little Ponies to Transformers. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff gets gets an appearance in this movie. It's basically set in a world where cartoons and people live side by side, and that is their reality. So you get lots of great opportunities for Disney to put cameos in here. And that's half the fun of the movie is just watching to see what pops up and when. And do these cameos provide some sort of comedic relief? Um, Did this movie make you laugh? Oh, yeah, of course. This is surprisingly a funny movie. Uh, This could have been an absolute bomb in terms of script and humor. I mean, if you've watched any of the the new Alvin and the Chipmunks or any of the new Smurf movies, uh, even the new live-action Tom and Jerry, these tend to be pretty hollow releases, but this is a surprisingly funny movie. Uh, Andy Samberg and John Mulaney provide the voices for Chip and Dale. They're hilarious, and there's just a lot of silly situations that come out of nowhere, and it'll inspire a good chuckle every few minutes or so. The Tom and Jerry is the first that came to mind when I saw the trailer for Chippendale. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm hoping, <laughs> hoping some things are, are changing, mixing around, but we'll see. Now, what else is coming out this week? So this week, I think the big movie coming to theaters uh, is the new Downton Abbey. Uh, that's not my scene, but I was surprised to learn that Arkansas has a pretty big Anglophile fan base. So... British cinema fans should be in for another treat of crumpets and tea and all of that fun jazz. All sorts of hijinks with the queen, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) Well, Courtney, next week, what are you hoping to review? Next week, I'm hoping to review uh, a new Anthony Hopkins film called Zero Contact. It was actually filmed uh, during the pandemic in 2020. And I know we're still in the pandemic in 2022, but this is filmed pre-vaccine. And I think the... The gimmick to this movie is that it was filmed entirely over Zoom. So it should be an interesting watch. Ooh, yeah, I'm interested. Well, Courtney, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can read film critic Courtney Lanning's full review of Chippendale Rescue Rangers today in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Fayetteville Public Library welcomes author of Killers of the Flower Moon, David Gran, to the FPL's New Event Center, Thursday, June 2nd at 7 p.m. Books will be available for sale, and a book signing will follow the author talk. This event is free and open to the public. 
Seating is first come, first served. For more information, F-A-Y-L-I-B dot O-R-G. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis, and I'm joined on the phone with Becca Martin-Brown. She's the features editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, you doing well this Friday? I am so excited this Friday because it's time for a Eureka Springs tradition to come back. Yes, you teased a little bit about this last week. Mm -hmm. Tonight is the White Street Walk, and it's been gone for two years. It should have turned 30. Now, this deal I want to get, it should have turned 32 years ago. Yeah. But it's not turning 30 till now. So they will be back for their 30th year tonight, and there'll be 40 to 50 artists along White Street in Eureka. It all started with Zeke Taylor and Mary Springer and Eleanor Lux. And it's still those three people. Eleanor's taking this year off because she's got, I think, a granddaughter graduating from school. I think that's a fairly good excuse. Yeah. But Mary and Zeke will be there. Zeke with his chimps and his (laughs) beautiful flowers. And Mary with jewelry and paintings. And Barbara Kennedy will be there, and Mark Hughes, and Steve Beecham, and Jeff Danos, and Lee Valance, and crazy crocheter Gina Galena, and Ron Landis, and Rosie Rose, the designer, and a whole bunch of other people. And Zeke is making his bushel of cookies. Quite a variety of art and a little bit of sugar to top it off. How can you go wrong with this? Exactly. So it starts at 4 o'clock today and runs through 10 o'clock. Admission is free. How much you spend is between you and your significant other. (laughs) And today and tomorrow is the Fresh Grass Festival at the Momentary in Bentonville. A little bit bigger deal. Yeah, a little bit. I'm planning on actually going tomorrow and catching some of the good stuff on the Saturday main stage. Yeah, a few big names like, oh, Emmy Lou Harris and Arkansas and Willie Carlisle and Hayes Carl. Yes. And it should be a lot of fun. I'm really, really looking forward to it. And it starts at $85 for a one-day pass. Also on Saturday, they're having the Tawny Town Heritage Day starting at 11 o'clock at the Tawny Town Farmer's Market at Harry Sabatno Park. Okay. And then on Sunday... Hop State Park is hosting a primitive skills workshop. It's the first of four that they're doing this year. And this one is on how to build shelter. Yes, I've, I've read a little bit about this. It, uh, back when I was in high school, Larry Buell, uh, who worked with Ozark Natural Science Center, he was a potter, he actually taught a lot of these same type of primitive skills like shelter building, cordage making, fire making, stuff like that. Seems like good things to know. Yeah. And that's exactly the topics. The first one is shelter building. The second one in July is making rope and cordage. The third one in October is making fire with friction, which I guess if you're a Boy Scout, you learned how to do. Girl Scouts learned to make cookies back in my day. And the one in December is on animal tracking. If you have to catch those little darlings and eat them, I guess. Also on Sunday, there's a panel discussion at 2 o'clock at the Shiloh Museum hosted by the Washington County Historical Society talking about the expanding role of Asian American and Pacific Islander cultures in Northwest Arkansas. And also on Sunday, at 3 o'clock, Here Come the Mummies are playing in the Walton Arts Center parking lot as part of the Joe Martin stage race. Oh, that'll be fun. Also, I want to tease you about Sunday. Okay. So they have some special guests this summer at the Tulsa Zoo. Okay. 
big, big guess. So, like bears? Like, is that what you mean by big? No, big, more like a brachiosaurus. Okay. They have 25 animatronic dinosaurs there for the summer. Oh, how fun. That reminds me of whenever the University of Arkansas Museum, Museum did that, like, years and years ago. My daughter was a toddler, but I remember it really well because she was dumbfounded by these critters. Right, right. They have all the good ones. They have the Brachiosaurus, which is actually the biggest one they'll have, even though it's an herbivore. And they have the T-Rex, and they have, well, across three periods, Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. Mm -hmm. They'll be there all summer, and it's a $6 add-on to your zoo ticket. I love dinosaurs, and I think I'm packing up to go see this one. So this will all be in your Sunday What's Up, and along with all sorts of other interesting things. I think we were in Fort Smith, Tulsa, and Branson for this Sunday. That ought to keep you busy till I see you next week. All right, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Becca. Becca Martin-Brown is the Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, stay cool out there. Absolutely. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Tomorrow night at Georgia's Majestic Lounge, the four-piece band Mildenhall will be part of an eclectic lineup for an album release show for the Flip-Off Pirates. Mildenhall is made up of lead singer Tommy Benke, who named the band after his birthplace in England, as well as guitarist and trumpet player Andrew Serra, Ben Cook on the bass, and band co-founder Matt Johnson on drums. The band, minus Johnson, came to the Furman Garner Performance Studio earlier this week to perform a few songs and chat with me. Hello, we are Mildenhall. Um, This is our song Cicadas, which uh, we just released uh, back in February. And uh, it's a very different acoustic version. Migrations fly into living room window panes. Some extra biological wonder. What is this natural phenomenon? I'm distracted by the cicada song, and it goes all of this life. Sing this to sin of beauty I'm not over sentimental Just a quiet observer Seven octillion atoms in your shoes I bet I could fill them But then if I disagree in 
Gentlemen, thanks for joining us here in the Furman Gardner Performance Studio here at KUAF. We're grateful to have you here. Uh, tell me a little bit about what brought the four of you together as a band. How did y'all meet? How did you start playing music together? Well, so Matt, the guy who is not here, uh, me and him met at an open door cigar lounge here in Fayetteville. And uh, we just kind of started talking about music. And uh, so the, me and him and some other people jammed. And uh, then we were, you know, I had kind of built up some material over, you know, like the pandemic. And so um, I was like sharing the material and then uh, we were trying to find a lead guitar player. And so uh, Andrew and Matt had met in high school. Mm -hmm. Right. So then he called him up and Andrew came and he jammed and we were like, yeah, let's let's keep this guy. Um, And then at the time we were playing with a bass player named Bennett Cox, but um, he uh, stepped out just for some personal reasons. And so I had met Ben through... Yes, a Battle of the Bands in 2019 at the U of A. Um, yeah, and then he came and played, and we were like, yeah, great. And so then we've been playing t- together as a four-piece since, I guess, December of 2021. A lot of times when bands start, you know, there's there's that, like, immediate connection between two folks. What was the, you know, when you're thinking about the, the music that brought the two of you together, what was the common interest musically? What do you kind of, um, you know, this is the artist that that I love and really inspires me to play music? Well, I mean, I think that's different for everyone here. Um, we don't, I don't, I don't think necessarily any of us like have bonded over like one particular artist that like we're like striving to be. I think uh, like, I don't know, Ben, you can speak for yourself as far as like what influences you, but like. Yeah. Um, I feel like um, whenever I'm thinking about my playing, I have a big jazz background and then, uh, just like playing in soul bands, things like that here and there. I, I really like 
Motown sounds and jumping around the bass. But one thing that I really love about Tom is um, his love for Radiohead and those crazy keyboard lines. It's um, I really, really enjoy that. Um, I'm a blues man myself. Blues is where my heart is. It's got my soul. Um, I grew up doing a band and orchestra, so I have a little bit of theory background. I was at the U of A for a year doing a guitar performance, but I'm all feel. <laughs> well, so we got a lot going on here. We've got Motown, we've got blues, we've got Radiohead. How do you write music that everyone can agree on? Uh, you just make it good, I guess, and then <laughs> take your ego out of it and play what the music is asking for. You got one more for us? What song are we going to hear next? So this song's called At the Periphery, and it's probably our most heavy song, and so uh, it'll be interesting to play and see how it isn't that. <laughs>
You can hear Mildenhall live at Georgia's Majestic Lounge tomorrow night. They performed in our Furman Garner Performance Studio earlier this week. This is your public radio station, KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Ozark, and Little Flock. 91.3 FM KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Contributors to today's show include Jacqueline Froelich and Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Thanks to Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics for catching up with us today. And you can find more news from around the state at talkbusiness.net. And thanks to Becca Martin-Brown and Courtney Lanning for checking in with us today as well. I will be back with you Sunday morning at 9 for a new edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large. And we'll be back with you Monday at noon and 7 p.m. to start another brand new week of daily editions of Ozarks at Large. Until then, get some rest, be well, enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again soon.